Well, let's seek the Lord's help as we return to his word once more this evening, recorded for us in the first book of Samuel, in the first book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, and chapter 7. And really our thoughts are really partly focused upon uh, the last words of verse 2, though we won't, of course, be restricted to uh, the contents there, but uh, uh, over the whole passage, Uh, but especially... Uh, focus upon the last words of verse 2. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This was a wonderful moment. Uh, Something that hadn't been seen for many a long year. The turning of a people back to God. An amazing thing a sovereign work of God, that that we ache and long for as the Lord's believing people. We see here a sample of it in Old Testament history. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. We're all longing for a drop of rain, aren't we? Uh, And have been for some little while now. And the very land itself aches and longs for Uh, the drops of water upon the trees and upon the grass. Well, here is a spiritual longing uh, which is planted by God. He's the author of it. And it's something that we long to see and it's something that we beg the Lord to do. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. It was a blessed day as we Really, in many ways, we're focused upon repentance here this evening. Uh, but it was said by a dear minister many long years ago. Uh, he, he, I remember him saying, he says, you know, you know when men uh, mention the subject of repentance, they think it's going to be something really miserable and gloomy and dark and down in the mouth. He says, nothing of the sort. He said, it's a blessed thing when men repent. It's the most wonderful thing that can happen in this sin-benighted world when men begin to turn to God, really turn to God. And uh, that's the moment we're capturing here this evening. Uh, You know, when the Lord works, really works, perhaps uh, it's not really uh, perceived to start with, and it's only afterwards that you say, yes, the Lord was at work. My wife and I were paddling in the North Sea a few uh, days ago, and there was this... uh, gentle argument going on between us. It's not something we were falling out over, but we were discussing whether the tide was coming in or going out. And it was so uncertain. We couldn't work it out. There were conflicting signals. Until about an hour later, we realized that the tide was, had definitely started coming in. And I think it's a bit like that when the Lord goes to work. Men aren't aware of it to start with. Uh, but they gradually become aware that God is at work, that God has done it. And that's wonderful, and that's amazing. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They longed for God. Oh, that we might see that in our day. A people longing for God. Oh, what a healing there would be of this world's ills if men turned to God wherever they are, whoever they are. 
Well, as we come to God's word here this evening, I want us to notice a number of things in this passage set before us. First of all, the tragedy of Israel's departure from her God. The early chapters of 1 Samuel record this sad and uh, and miserable state of affairs. The tragedy of Israel's departure from God. Then secondly, we come to the turning back uh, recorded by our words here. This turning back to God. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Because we know that man is not the author of it. It doesn't come from men. But it comes from a deep and mighty movement of God the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. Working in a a major way here and working in a minor way in a sense that is in one single heart in the case of the prodigal son that we've read in our second reading this evening. This turning back. So then the tragedy of Israel's departure from God, the turning back, Then thirdly, and very importantly, the test that Samuel applies. Have have you really turned back to God? We want the hard evidence that you've done so. More of that when we get that far. But there's a vital test that he applies to see if they've really repented and turned back to God. Then finally, if we've got time, the incredible triumph of Israel at the end of the passage. This total and absolute victory over all of her enemies. You notice that, of course, in the word of God, in the Old Testament history, that when God goes to work, the victory of his people is absolute and, and, you know, it's unequivocal. It's so absolutely certain uh, when, uh, when Israel are victorious in their Old Testament experiences. So basically then, those four points here this evening uh, for us to consider. The tragedy of Israel's departure from her God. The turning back. The test that Samuel applies. And finally, the triumph that they all experience together in their God. What a wonderful little chapter this is. And uh, what a breath of fresh air it is. And on a day like today, what a sweet shower of rain it is uh, to experience. First of all, the tragedy of Israel's departure from her God. I hope you're roughly acquainted with the early chapters of 1 Samuel, no matter if you're not, uh, but nevertheless, uh, they record this awful, dismal scene of a people who have lost their way. Who've lost their way. Our Western so-called Christian nations have lost their way. They've lost their way. And uh, Israel had lost her way. Now, I want us to focus on five characters in the early chapters of 1 Samuel 3. Now, I said there were two other principal characters. I mentioned Hannah, and we haven't got really time this evening to go into Hannah, uh, but it's really quite remarkable to see how the Lord is going to use her prayers and her anguish and her desperation to do wonderful things in Israel in the end. But that's a story I won't focus upon tonight. Who's the other character I'm talking about? Friends, we don't even know her name. But she is the daughter-in-law of Eli. And there's a very sad and affecting and tragic scene because she's dying in childbirth. 
And have you noticed this about Hannah and this woman? Nobody around them understands what's going on. Have you noticed this? You know, Hannah has a decent husband, doesn't she, up to a point? Elkanah? You know, he's a nice enough chap. But he doesn't appreciate what the real need is. He can't see the elephant in the room, can he? Am I not better to than ten sons? Well, sorry, but you're not. You're not. However nice you are, you're part of the problem, Elkanah. But we can't go into that. Look at the other woman. She's dying. And uh, all the people around are trying to comfort her. Say, so, no, you, you've, got, you've got a man-child. But, but the word tells us she doesn't even regard it. A woman bearing a child, you think, well, you, you, she's totally taken up with this little baby. But no, she doesn't even take any notice. And you know what a great slogan is, don't you? That word that uh, has been used for people's names since, for unfortunate people have been given that name, Ichabod. None of it's any good anymore because the glory has departed from Israel. The ark is gone and nothing is any good. That's what she's saying, isn't it? Isn't it? The glory is departed from Israel. It was a tragic moment. I'm going to redeem that before the end, before I've done tonight. But it was a tragic moment in the experience of God's people. God as God. Can there be anything worse than that? Can there be anything worse than that? That God has gone. And therefore, if God has gone, what's the use of anything anymore? That's the godly view, actually, would you believe? Because that poor woman was godly. She saw it from a godly point of view, not from the point of view of the world. The world can do without God, thank you very much. But the godly can't. The glory is departed from Israel. The tragedy then of Israel's departure from her God. But now let's come to the turning back. And as I said to start with tonight, it's a blessed thing when men repent. And like all graces, God is the author of it. The Hebrew here gives the sense of lamenting grievously. A sense of great loss has been brought home to them. They've realized at last that they've lost their God. And there's a sense of desperation and despair in themselves. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You know, we've read that other story tonight, haven't we? And we've read of that blessed moment when things began to change in the life of that young man. It's a tremendous story, isn't it, that Jesus tells there? Such an economy of words, and yet such a powerful, compelling story. It's vivid, isn't it? We've all got a picture of that story in our minds, haven't we? We can see all those things happening. And here's this young man, 
And can things get any worse? A, a young Jewish lad in a pigsty, can anything be worse? And even then he's starving. And it says he came to himself. Isn't that a wonderful moment? When people come to themselves. When we see a change. When we see a real genuine change in their hearts. We know something, something profound is going on. My wife and I were privileged to attend a, a, a baptizing service at Ebenezer Chapel, Old Hill, a few weeks back. Uh, we had wind, we had news some weeks earlier that her cousin, Andrew, uh, was to be baptized. Now, Andrew was a, was a nice enough chap, and he'd attended chapel all of his life, but that's about all you could say until I preached there about 18 months ago, and some of the women folk were coming up to me and nudging me, there's a change in Andrew, you know. There's a change. Something's happened. And so we were very favoured to witness that confession of the Lord in Andrew, over 60 years of age. And yet, the comfort of that was, is tremendous. This change. Here's this young man, he comes to himself. And you know what brings him to himself? Why? It's, it's the memory of back home. Back home comes to life again in his life. The home that he's spurned, that he's, that he's insulted, the, the home that he's rejected, it comes back vividly to his mind. And he thinks to himself, Look at those casual laborers in the marketplace. Nobodies that nobody knows from Adam. And my dear old daddy will go down to the marketplace and he'll say, come on, fella, I'll give you a day's work. Come up to the farm. The wife will give you something to eat and drink and come out on the fields and, uh, and, and I'll give you a good day's work. And the young man thinks about that. And he says, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Oh, I'm no longer fit to be called a son. I, I, I don't for one moment expect to get back into my family. I've, I've brought such awful disgrace uh, that I can never be called a son anymore. But I can be one of those hired laborers, can't I? I can, I can be like them. Well, you know the rest of the story, don't you? And you know, when he does come back, he doesn't get treated as a hired laborer at all. He, he gets treated as a long-lost son who was dead and is alive again, who was lost but has been found. I remember hearing somebody preach on that a good while ago now, a good few years ago. But the minister, again, like me, he was fantasizing a bit and imagining you know, what was going on uh, in the backstory that was going on. And he, he imagined some of the people in the village, you know, behind his back, talk, talking about the lad's father, silly old fool, been taken in by his son again. And, 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 and the father overhearing and turning round on them and saying, but don't you see what's happened? He was dead! 
And he's alive again. He was completely lost. And I found him again. I've left the story at that point in reading tonight, haven't I? Uh, those words, and they began to be merry. That's merry in the old-fashioned sense of the word, not in the um, you know, boozy sense of the word. And they began to be merry. They began to be really happy. All of them, except the elder brother. But that's another story. Uh, and so you see what happens. Uh, what happens when somebody repents. When the people turn back to God. Uh, uh, there's joy. Why, the Lord Jesus says there's joy in heaven. Think about it for a minute. Joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Just one. And you, you can hear the cheer go up amongst the angels. Just one. It's a blessed thing when men repent. But we must hasten on. Point three, the test. The test. And you can see it here in the passage, can't you? Verse three, Then Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only. Then verse 4, Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. Now friends, verse 4 contains yet another miracle. How can I explain it? Well, in an economy of words, let's put it like this. You know, these heathen religions, these heathen practices, you mustn't get the idea that they were in any way uh, unpleasant or, or, or scary or, or, or nasty in that sense of the word. Otherwise, people wouldn't, wouldn't do it, would they? Now, I'm not going to go into seamy details here, but the overwhelming nature of this religion can be seen in the fact that one of the deities is male and the other deity is female. So I'm, I'm not going to spell it out. But we don't need much imagination to realize what was going on in these assemblies. And of course such pleasures are addictive. And not just overpowering to man's baser nature, but they are addictive. So therefore, it was all the more wonderful and all the more remarkable that they were able to kick the habit and drop it and, and, and uh, decisively turn away from it. That was a miracle, wasn't it? You know, various forms of sin are addictive. Uh, they, their continued practice weakens people, weakens their minds, and everything about them. Therefore, it was all the more wonderful and remarkable that we see people decisively turning from those evil things. Well, friends, finally, let's come and take a look in our closing minutes. Let's take a look at the wonderful triumph that takes place. And as we do, let's look at some of the contrasts between chapter 4, for example, and chapter 7. One of the commentators has been very helpful in this respect. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, in his fairly brief but very effective commentary, 
has shown certain, uh, certain contrasts here at work. First of all, in chapter 4, if you read that at some time, or if you can remember what happens there, Israel are smitten down by the Philistines. They're completely felled by the Philistines. Now, in chapter 7, the Philistines are smitten by them. They're, they're completely overcome by the Israelites. But two great contrasts to consider is this. You go back to chapter 4. And here's Israel, uh, you know, in struggling with the Philistines. And Israel is saying, look, we need to bring up the big guns to frighten the Philistines. I know what we'll do. We'll get the Ark of the Covenant. And it's very telling the language they used back then about, about their situation. Maybe if we use it, it will help us. It will help us. You see how far off they are from God? They think they can magically make his furniture help them. But we know that's not going to work. Not for a minute. And worse happens because the ark of God is actually taken from them. And they're completely defeated. When we rely upon things, however impressive, noble and lovely, Cowper uses the word dear, doesn't he? Dearest. He wouldn't talk about his sins as such like that. But the noble things, the dear things in his life, the people and the places in his life that were so dear to him. And if you know a bit about his life, you know that was the case. And much of his mental stability depended upon the security of these things. But he says they're the dearest idol I've known. You see, Israel were taught this one thing, that it was God alone. Famous worship. And nothing else. Uh, so we have this uh, contrast. But I've got to bring you to chapter 7. Because Israel are no longer saying it. They are saying he. They're now praying to the Lord. They're certainly asking Samuel to pray to the Lord for them. Not Samuel, get handy with, with the Ark of the Covenant. No, come straight to the Lord, Samuel, and, and pray to him for us. Can you hear the desperation in their prayers? Can you, can you, can you feel the, uh, the, the urgency? Uh, and, and even Samuel himself. And we read, don't we, wonderfully that the Lord heard him. Uh, and so we have this tremendous thought. But the biggest contrast of all is this. Uh, I, I won't rehearse the details of their victory now, but what Samuel did afterwards as a result of it all. What do we see there? Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Now that was a remarkable thing to say. Not simply because of the victory, the great victory that they just experienced, and let me underline the fact it was a great victory. When God goes to war, then it is absolutely decisive. You know, it, it won't be like a, a Russia-Ukraine conflict that's gone on for six months, indecisively. When God works, it is abs absolutely uh, convincing. 
Look at the first great victory of Israel for a moment with me. Uh, when they stood on the further shore of the Red Sea and they saw the entire military might of Egypt dissolve in front of their eyes. Never to be seen again. That was some day that was. When there was nothing left of Egyptian power. The power that had oppressed and enslaved them for centuries was gone. Never to return. The Egyptians that you've seen this day, you will see no more forever. That's what happens when God goes to victory. But the point, finally, I'm coming to is this. The last two great contrasting words are these. We've seen one already tonight, Ichabod, on the lips of that poor dying woman. And how, now we have a word that completely eclipses the Ichabod. Ebenezer, the stone of help. Because Samuel said, hitherto the Lord, that is to say, the Lord has always been there for us. Even in the darkest times, even when it seemed that God had gone, he was still there. He was still there for us. Hitherto, the Lord has helped us. He'd said to their first, uh, their, their first fathers, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Even when he hides his face. Our God, how firm his promise stands, even when he hides his face. And, and we, we have this so clearly set before us. Uh, that Samuel said, the Lord, he's always been there. Even in the darkest days of Hophni and Phinehas, even at those times when we thought all was over with us, the Lord was there. Hitherto, the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer, here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thine help I am come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Yes, our God, how firm his promise stands in when he hides his face. And we, we see it, it, he's committed to our Redeemer's hands, as the hymn writer says, his glory and his grace. And uh, Isaac Watts goes on to say, Beneath his smiles my heart has lived and part of heaven possessed. And so here is the great comfort that God's people have, uh, that uh, the Lord is always there, has always been there for them. And so we may trust upon him. So may God bless his word to us this night and cause us to hope upon it. And may we know the grace of repentance of what it is to turn to the Lord constantly and at all times and to earnestly seek his face and pray that we might see something of what we've, uh, uh, what we've recorded here tonight uh, that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord that's a lovely sound that is even when uh, the people are crying and, and, and full of, uh, and full of uh, desperation 
It's a wonderful thing to hear. But all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. May God bless his word to us.